Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior, because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who, who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I think J.D. is trying to tell us that he got accepted into Stephen F. Austin University. So I know they're online, so give him a big round of applause. We're really proud of him. He's going on a music scholarship of some, scholarship of some sort, and I, I, I know he would appreciate your encouragement. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul goes on a little rant. He's telling people, you know, you think you have something to brag on. Let me, let me just stop for a minute. Before he's done with this paragraph, he will say, I'm a fool if I do things like this. But he goes on this little rant. If someone thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcision on the eighth day. And if you were a good synagogue group of people, you would go, yeah, right? Okay, so yeah, all right. So give me a, can just practice it once. All right, very good. Circumcised on the eighth day yeah. of the people of Israel, yeah. the tribe of Benjamin, yeah. a Hebrew of Hebrews, yeah. in regard to the law of Pharisee. Yeah. Now, see, isn't that really contradictory? We've read the gospel, and we've had know how much trouble Jesus and the Pharisees had with each other. But make no mistakes, the people who lived in the synagogues and who understood the law the way the Jewish Teachers had read it. When you said Pharisee, they said, yeah, yeah very good. A as for a Pharisee, zeal, persecuting the church. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Yeah. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Yeah. You know, I think by the time he got to that last one, it was a little bit like the scene with the adulterous woman. Let the first one of you who doesn't have sin... You'd throw the stone. And I have a feeling we were very excited. And is according to the law, righteousness according to the law, faultless. And uh, yeah. Paul goes on this little rant, but everything for Paul changes on the road to Damascus. So essential was that change that not immediately, but before he's done, his name will change. He goes into Damascus and the Christians are afraid because they've heard about who Saul is. When Paul visits cities, he's welcomed. Welcomed as a proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles. He may not be welcomed in all the synagogues and by all the Jews, but if you were a Christian, particularly if you were a Christian who was someone who didn't come from Jewish heritage, Paul was a hero because he was bringing the gospel in a very special way for you. 
Again, when we read Romans, when we engage in this text, and thank you, J.D., for doing such a great job with the first part of our section today, you have to put that in the context of the, of the reality of the history of the place of Rome in that in 49, the Jews were evicted by Claudius, and then in 54, Nero invited them to come back, and this created a division in the church. It may well be that it created the first occurrence of a church that was entirely Gentile without any Jewish influence whatsoever. We're not exactly sure how, if the Jews left, how the Christians still had hold of the Holy Scriptures, of the, of the Law of Prophets and the Psalms, because the Jews may have taken them with them. But I have a feeling there were Jewish Christians who said, you're going to need these, and left the Law with them. But it is this unique place where the church for five years got to be just entirely Gentile. And then the Jews came back to town. And not just Jews who hadn't believed and trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, but Jews who had also accepted Christ as Messiah, but had held on to the core of their heritage. Many of the traditions and, the again, the the decrees from the law they held on to is very precious to them and many of them that we run into in letter after letter after letter of Paul's wanted to say to the Gentile Christians you need to become Jewish you need to practice Sabbath you need to practice circumcision if you're really going to be part of God's kingdom and so when they came back to town arguments ensued you started doing what with the Lord's Supper? You started doing what on Saturdays? What do you mean it's been five years since any of our babies have been circumcised? Whatever the case may be, it created conflict. And particularly chapter 2 is a conversation that Paul has both with leaders of the Gentile elements of the church and leaders of what were the newly replanted Jewish Christians in the church. It's not likely that he's talking to Jews who have rejected Jesus, but he's still talking to Jews. And when we move into this, uh, this introductory section, this chapters 1 through 4, uh, he potentially, at this point, really turns his focus to the Jewish leadership. A conversation that has been interwoven interwoven in the previous parts of chapter 2 and, and actually overlapping into chapter 1. And you say, well, what does that have to do with us? Except that I think we can still recognize the way in which oftentimes our churches can be divided on so many different lines. And Paul says any division in the church, any sense in which something is more important than the lordship of Jesus keeps us from being the witnesses that God has called us to be. But now he steps into this part of the argument that's really kind of focused on those who have come back to town and said, you have forgotten to observe the law. And he addresses them as those who teach others. And then he asks the question, do you teach yourselves? I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 25, and I would appreciate you. I hope that you have your Bibles out, because I realize it's on the screen, but you're going to, even if you read it along on the screen, at some point, I'm going to say something, and you're going to need to refer back to the text. 
And if you don't have it open, it won't be open on the screen. Those of you at home, I encourage you to have your Bibles open and ready, starting in chapter 2, and we'll roll over into the first eight verses of chapter 3. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Again, this is an argument that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Because we don't necessarily put a whole lot of external regulations on whether you can be recognized as a Christian or not. For them to be a Jew, and again, for the Jewish Christians, to be a Jew was the first step to truly being somebody who honored Christ. And this idea of circumcision was one of the most central things. It was an identifying mark in the flesh that said, I have obeyed the law. But unfortunately, what they were doing was, and again, his argument is, if you put your confidence just in what you do in the flesh and it doesn't have anything to do with your heart, then what is done in the flesh means nothing. And he's not alone in saying this. He is quoting the prophets who, particularly Isaiah, particularly Jeremiah, over and over again say, I understand that you're following a set of rules, but it doesn't have anything to do with faith. It doesn't have anything to do with trusting God. It doesn't have anything to do with you being able to stand up and boastfully proclaim your own righteousness. Paul will continue the argument. The one who is not circumcised fierce physically yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have, written, have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew, it, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the written code. He's used that phrase twice, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Is it, is it about your heart? That's what God is looking for. Skipping into, stepping into chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted... I love this phrase, with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? What if some Jews were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every be human being be a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if you... If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument when I talk that way. And his answer, can you say it with me? Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may result? Certainly not is not strong enough here. You could put a lot of different words with this, but the way it's translated is, 
their condemnation is complete and just. They can just go to hell. You heard it several times in this section, the idea of the law. It's something that has come up already and it will continue to come up as we read forward. In fact, it's going to continue to come up as long as we're in the book of, of Romans. So it's important that we understand that when Paul uses that phrase, the law, he actually can mean several different things. And it is only by the context that we kind of have to reach and say, I think this looks like what he's referring to. And I think oftentimes we can make that association. But I want to kind of get the the spectrum of what he could be talking about out in front of you as we continue to move forward. I won't intentionally bring this up week by week, but I may make reference to it. Again, remember that word, the law, means a lot of different things, and here it refers to this. So the law can be, and again, it's there in this passage, the very words of God, all of them, okay? So everything that comes down to us, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the psalms, all come to us from God. Amen? And sometimes when Paul talks about the law, he is almost saying the scriptures, okay? The holy scriptures. You need to understand that when Paul writes this letter, there's not the New Testament for him to refer to. The scriptures that they are, they are proclaiming the gospel through, the scriptures that they are uh, bringing people to know Jesus through, the way that they're proving that he is the Messiah is the use of the law and the prophets and even the Psalms. Yes, it does appear that sayings that Jesus had and, and ways that we talk about the things that he did seem to be circulating, but more than a, a book like you and I have, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or again, a letter from Paul, whatever it may be, it was more about people who just had memorized those and were passing them along, and maybe they recited them together at different times to remember. The very words of God, the law as the very words of God. It can be narrowed down quite a bit. The first five book, books, sometimes called the Pentateuch, some called, sometimes called the law or the Torah, can be what he's talking about. Again, a, a very narrow section that, Paul, that Moses lays out the story of where the Jews came from, the story of God, how God mercifully redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and how God was preparing them to become his people in the promised land through the years in the wilderness. And so much of what's included in that section are regulations and stipulations and instructions for how you are to be a people of light and salt, people who will make a difference when you move into this promised land and I will be known in the whole world because of the kind of people you are. One of the things in that list from the law of Moses has to do with the third item. Sometimes when Paul uses the word law, he is talking specifically about special Jewish religious traditions or what we might call sacraments. The idea of circumcision, which is one that comes up on a regular basis. The idea of the observance of the Sabbath, that Saturday was be, to be reserved for not working, for, for being still and focusing your, your mind on, on the word of God and assembling together at synagogue. These are things that were valued tradition, the observance of the Passover and other feasts that went on. These were seen as the law. These are the requirements of the law, almost as it were. But fourth, he will also use it. So again, 
all the words of God which we're blessed by. Amen? We're so thankful that God left his word with us. The Torah, the law of Moses, and that, that those first opening passages of the Bible that talk so powerfully about who God is. And if we're to be a people to live in relationship with God, the way in which we have the opportunity to, to reflect God's justice and God's mercy, God's truthfulness and God's faithfulness. The Jewish sacraments, which we have to kind of point to and say, this is what set the Jews apart. But then he will also talk about and use the word law when he's specifically talking about the concept, the abstract concept of legalism. The idea that I am made right by the law. That by observing, and again, Paul's already made the argument. You've heard it in previous weeks. Reading in previous chapters and passages, Paul says, I recognize that you want to say that you're right because you follow the law, but nobody follows the law completely. When we are honest, we have to say that I may move in the right direction and I may have the right intentions, but I never get completely there. So Paul uses that idea that you stand up and say, I'm better than you are because I am able to follow at least some of the laws and I at least recite them even when I don't completely keep them. And that's what he was talking about earlier. You who teach the law, but you don't keep it all the way. You teach not to steal, but part of your life is not about complete integrity. You say don't have idols, but the way you worship God is, is, can be sacrilegious in various kinds of ways. You need to understand that legalism is not the way to get to God. And when he uses the law in that way, he's saying that you can't get to God, you can't ever fulfill that process because you have to be completely perfect in it, and no one has done that except Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. I want to highlight a couple of arguments very quickly that go on in this text, and I'm hopeful that I can and bring some of this home, maybe make it a little bit understood. Paul is having a conversation with someone who's asking questions who's not in, he's not present with Paul. Paul has to assert what they're talking about. It's possible that Paul has gotten word from Rome. These are what people are saying about you, things akin to that. It, it is an imaginary partner in the co conversation. In technical terms, it's called a diatribe. It is teaching by exchanging ideas. And by the way, it's relatively foreign to us. This is not the way we really teach in our classrooms, not the way you and I grew up learning, okay? It isn't a, a question-answer memorization process. It's about presenting concepts, and we learn those concepts and step into them. So it's a little bit foreign, particularly on a higher kind of rhetorical level. So I want to try to make sure I bring this to you. In 3.1, it's a bit like a court case. Uh, you, you, you're familiar with watching law room dramas on TV or on a movie or something like that. And what often happens is somebody's giving testimony and, and one of the lawyers will stand up and say what? I object. And that's basically what Paul kind of stands up and does with this little section here. I object to what's being said about me or some misrepresentation. I object. In 3.1, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision. 
And we could see this as an objection that the, the Jews say. Well, if you're saying that none of that really is important to God, then, then why is there Jewishness at all? But it could also well be that these are the Gentiles kind of poking fun. See, Paul will tell you, we're going to sick Paul on you. He'll tell you that that Sabbath observing and that Passover observing and that circumcising those boys, that has nothing to do with anything. And Paul says very emphatically, there is great value. Now, he will make the argument very carefully. There is great value in what God has invested in his instructions to the people known as the Jews. Who came from Abraham and who were particularly made into a nation by Moses. And who God put kings over in the promised land. And what he says about that, and, and, and he will say that that's very important because it gave us a world in which God's Son could come in and fulfill everything that God had always asked. So again, Jesus makes all the difference. The second little uh, I object statement comes in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? This is one of those silly kind of arguments. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, wait a minute, you're telling me that God is all-powerful? Well, can God make something so big and heavy that he can't lift it? It's a silly argument. It's a circular argument. God doesn't need to do that. God doesn't, there's no purpose in that process. You're going in circles here. And this may well be, again, if the first objection, I would actually almost say, is the Gentile Christians standing up and saying, See, ha! There's no reason to be worried about being Jewish. The Jews may turn around and say, oh, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If our unrighteousness brings out God's... If, you're, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Is God unjust in bringing about his wrath? You have this little argument going on with people who can't seem to figure out that if we will put aside our individual prejudices, that we can get to Jesus. His answer to those in verse 1, who say, what advantage is there in being in, in the Jews? He uses this word, entrusted. They were entrusted with the very words of God. And to a certain extent, the way in which their traditions developed, and, and again, some of these were not just human traditions. God said, I want you to observe the past Passover. I want you to observe Sabbath. I want you to circumcise your male sons on the eighth day. While they are not a direct reflection of faithfulness to God, only that comes from the heart. If we are to be entrusted with the words of God, and if God is to make a difference through us, then those distinctives made a difference in the world around them. People came through Israel and said, there are weird kind of folks there. Why are they that way? And it points them back to God. Unfortunately, too many times what they did is say, as opposed to saying, well, if you want to know what makes us different, look at God. Oftentimes what they wound up doing was, well, let us show you some scrolls. And we can unroll where this law is. 
And in doing that, and in not letting all of what God said, and particularly, by the way, the most powerful things that God had to say, that Jesus emphasized, right? We've talked about these multiple weeks in this series already. That Jesus says, tell me, what summarizes, what's the greatest aspect of the law? And Jesus said, God wants you to know to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and equal to that is the law that you will love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews would say, to love the Lord my God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to circumcise our sons, is to observe Sabbath, is to eat kosher, is to observe Passover on a regular basis. But they so often, as you read their story, are so quick to point to their traditional sacraments as what made them law observers that they so often left out what it was to love your neighbor as yourself. They forgot justice for the poor. They forgot justice for the foreigner. They forgot justice for the widow and the orphan and those who could not take care of themselves. And so it was that God entrusted them, not just with the words of God, but a God who related to them on a personal basis. A God who chose to have his, his instruction, his revelation of truth and good rest with these people. And unfortunately, what they had done with it is had maligned it. But not reading the whole, by assuming that having the law is what made them special, not obeying the law. That being able to recite the scripture was more important than living into it by loving your neighbor. Living into it by letting your life be a humble representation of what God can do. As I said earlier, the response to the second argument is absolutely not. There is nothing greater than God's righteousness and nothing can assail God's righteousness. Amen? And the fact that the Jews were unfaithful to God, did not change God's faithfulness or his righteousness. And the fact that Gentiles had lost their way so completely, as we talked about in chapter 1, or could have, does not change God's righteousness. The world keeps a-changing, doesn't it? And so oftentimes, as the world changes, what the society, the culture wants us to tell us, is that right and wrong change. God says, I am right. I am righteousness. And the fullest expression of my righteousness living in human flesh was Jesus. And that will not change. I hope you can rely on that. Three quick things about understanding this idea of being a people who would see instructions for God and work towards living out those instructions in our life. I realize we are not Jews. We don't eat kosher. Maybe you eat no gluten. Maybe you eat no fat. Maybe you eat no carb. But you still aren't eating no kosher. Or you aren't eating kosher, okay? That we would choose to be people who are obedient to God. 
that we choose to say, I, I hear the law of God, I want to learn the law of God, and I want to live in the law of God, we have to have some understanding about what that means in relationship to God. Now, three quick things, if I can. First of all, we need to, and I've already mentioned this in a way, recognize that God's law and his promise are lifted higher by Jesus. If we're going to interpret what the Old Testament has to say, it always has to be interpreted through Jesus. Amen? If we're going to interpret what Paul has to say in his letters to churches that we love so much, those instructions, they need to be interpreted through Jesus. I'm afraid it's too often that we take Paul and we make him, well, Jesus was okay, but we really like Paul. Paul has to be interpreted through Jesus. And if we talk about, if I want to follow God, I want to live in his law and his instruction as fully as I can, the idea, like Paul, to say that I could ever complete that journey, I am going to run with all I have, amen? I'm going to lay everything I've got on the line to be who God wants me to be, but I will always understand that the standard is not me. And I don't get to stand here in judgment of anybody else. And I don't get to decide what the rules are based on what I can do. The rules are always, the law is always, the instruction is always completed and pointed towards Jesus. We recognize that as we follow, we are simply leaning into and pointing towards who Jesus is. And if our life, if our moral and ethical life and what we say is right and wrong don't point pe people to Jesus or the way in which we try to follow what God asks us to do doesn't point to Jesus, then we're not doing it in a way that honors and glorifies God and, and confesses and proclaims that Jesus is the completion of all that God wants us to be. Amen? Number two. If we're going to understand the law, we've got to define the difference between following God's instructions to be righteous and responding in faith to his mercy and grace. I want you to hear what the Jews did so often. Again, Isaiah is the one who will say, you who proclaim God as, as your sovereign, the one who rules you, the, you who hold up the law, you have become you have made God a blasphemy to the nations because of the way you've done it. Because you have told them we are the only righteous ones and you are just all sinners. We are the ones who have the law and it's for us so we can be special, not for you so that you can know the light and life of, Christ, of God. Amen? There's a little story called Jonah. You may have heard of it before. Jonah and the big fish, I think, is the Veggie Tales version. And what you find is, is that Jonah is told by God to go and proclaim my word to a foreign people. And Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And then God puts him in the fish and throws him up. And then he goes and proclaims. But before the story's over, and aren't we thankful? And Because they repent, amen? I mean, one of the greatest gospel meetings of all time. Because you have no idea how bad those Ninevites are. I mean, they run around with fish hitting people all the time. They're terrible folks. 
But the problem was, is when they repented, Jonah mourned. Because somehow or another, he saw their repentance somehow taking away from Israel's and his own righteousness. If we can include them, then what kind of club is this? If you follow God's instructions to somehow or another set yourself up as better than other people, then you are following God for the wrong reason. If on the other stand you read his law and his instruction and it is your desire of your heart to obey what he wants you to do because you want to show him how thankful for you are for his grace and mercy in sending Jesus and letting what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection be applied to your life. Are you ever going to be able to say thank you enough for that? My answer to that question is no. Am I ever going to quit trying to say thank you for that? My answer is no. Third, it is my hope that we celebrate. See, what's so often interesting is we want to put God's law up there as just a bunch of rules we have to obey. obey. But when we think about the law as a bigger context of God calls us to follow and respond to his mercy and grace because of the power of his promise. The promise that Jesus would come, the promise that Jesus took on our sins and that sin had been defeated through the resurrection, and the promise, I'm excited about it, the promise that he will come back and make all things new. I want to respond and celebrate those promises in the most humble and gentle kind of obedience. Because I don't want the light to be on me when I obey. I want the light to be on Jesus. Celebrating God's good news. The good news that revealed himself through the Jews for thousands of years. But has more fully been revealed and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So that all of us can point to, point to, not just the revelation of God's righteousness, but a righteousness that lets us share in his salvation. Amen? So I will quote again from chapter 1, verse 16. What he offers is the power of God to bring salvation. Can you finish it for me? To everyone. And that's me, and that's you, and that's also all those folks out there. I invite you to respond to that gospel, that salvation, with the sense that I want to humbly lay my life down and I want to take up the cross within me so that his resurrection and new creation can continually be formed in my life. Amen? If you would like to pray about that, if you would like to respond an initial kind of step into that gospel, waters of baptism can be prepared and we would be glad to welcome you into the family of God. If you want, if you're needing prayers, I encourage you to visit with the people near you, to find one of our elders who are here and visit with them. If you're online, there's always the opportunity to reach out to 979-217-3300. That's not a phone call, voice call, that's a text. And I encourage you, how can we pray for you? Whatever we can do to help you live, not in just the 
physical outward expressions of circumcision or baptism or somehow an obedience to the law that says, I'm going to make myself right, but instead you want to make your heart one that is fully devoted to God. Won't you come now as we stand and sing? How firm the foundation is changed.